Welcome to the Prog School Podcast, where we break down progressive rock albums in a way that anyone can understand it. Today is our first episode, and we are going to discuss the inaugural album of Prog Rock, King Crimson's Court of the Crimson King. to say that five times fast <laughs> how's it going morgan oh good how you doing good just uh i don't know when this will actually release yeah. but we it, have quite a uh blizzard going on up okay. here in the pacific northwest yeah it is the day of <laughs> day after thanks valentine's day we uh yeah. got a bunch of snow over here too i'm just north of seattle for anyone who doesn't know and we usually don't get a lot of snow here but we got like probably a foot yeah but it's all melting now. Now it's raining. And it's forty degrees, and it's it's disgusting, and it's oh, melting everything. <laughs> There's probably it's just all slush. It's now. terrible. Yeah, it's you. It's like yeah. great for one day. You can go outside and sled, and then it just becomes terrible. So I can't even yeah, it, go outside and exercise or anything. Right now. Oh, but. yeah. I think it came over the um, Cascades there and hit Moscow today because we. I mean, it was crazy. It was dumping this morning. Like I parked outside of Staples. I went inside, I came back out and my car was frozen, but I got back out and, the and I'm, I'm in Idaho, by yeah. the way, I'm in North Idaho. Yeah. So yeah, Gerald, Gerald and I, um, we'll get into the episode here in a second, but Gerald and I yeah. met each other in Moscow, Idaho. That's where I went to school and you were going to school at the time, right? Still? I think I was. Yeah. Kind of it was somewhere around the time. It was about the time I graduated and he might've even graduated, but we played yeah. in some bands together, uh, an original band of old, old false false pretense false pretense yeah i don't think you but can then, even find any of that stuff anywhere i don't think we even have anything online i don't anymore. even think i have an album uh myself <laughs> i i, I, I don't ha- i don't have it either something. i think i think uh, some of the other guys do that's probably for the best um i think so <laughs> but we had kind of a prog rock edge so uh, yeah in quarter we played in a band called quarter life crisis and we yep. did some covers and i we did that's Actually, uh, that was probably my introduction to a lot of prog elements. Yeah, yeah. Was through that band. We played um, some Rush songs and yeah. some other interesting stuff too. That was fun. We played in all the bars and stuff in Moscow. In Idaho, oh, we're yeah, like, hey, we're gonna play some seven eight time signature we played, for you. We played Tom Sawyer <laughs> in dive bars in like Podunk, Idaho. <laughs> yeah, they're like, do you know country music? And we're like, no, <laughs> no, we're talking about. They loved us. Just Rush. We're just Rush and Black Sabbath. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, fun. we uh, I was talking to Gerald because you know we chat chat a lot just being friends and um I'd always kind of wanted to do a podcast just in general and I think he was wanting to do one as well and since I had mm-hmm. kind of introduced the Prog School I thought it would be cool to do uh a Prog School podcast. Um and maybe approach it a little differently than other musical podcasts. Um kind of so I'm going to come at it from the musical perspective of Obviously, I understand what's going on theoretically and all the different instruments and the arrangements and all that. And Gerald's going to be kind of doing more of the historical aspect of it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to look at the the socio-political yeah, yeah. stuff. In a lot of ways, in this prog school, I'm very much the student. Okay. And I, uh, I, I'm i not a music theory background person. And so I feel like if we uh, accrue a lot of prog fans, they're going to be like, gosh, that guy knows nothing <laughs> about music. But I'm, I'm totally willing to do that because I think that prog rock is such a cool genre. And I hope I can act as kind of a bridge for a lay person to be like, oh, that's why that song is so great, you know, yeah. or that's why that album is so great. So 
I'm probably just going to be asking Morgan a lot of questions about what is happening in a song well, and just let him explain it. Yeah, but I think, you know, hopefully I'll learn some stuff too about the other elements of it too because I don't, as a musician, I'd always think about the historical elements or the social elements that much. It's like I listen to an album, I'm like, oh, that's sweet, you know, and I don't necessarily think like what was happening in that country at that time, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think, and, and, and my expertise in that is that I'm a high school, um, social studies and English teacher. Yes. So I'm bringing that to it and, and, and explaining, you know, what's going on in the historical context of each album that we cover. So, yeah. But Gerald is also a musician too. So it's not like he doesn't know anything about it. And like, he understands, like he can listen to it and appreciate certain things. Right. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I think, as we go through different albums and go through different er eras of prog and stuff, it'll be interesting to see, first of all, what we think about it as far as how much we like it and, and all that. But, but also um, if we can learn to appreciate some stuff that maybe we didn't before, I think that's part of yes, it. Yes, that would be great. And so I, that's exactly what happened. Like we're talking about King Crimson's uh, court, court of the Crimson King for mm -hmm. our first episode here. And, uh, that's exactly, I, I really, I had heard King Crimson, I guess. Um, I watched a Lennon Claypool Delirium concert and they played Court of the Crimson King. I heard King Crimson in the movie Mandy. They play uh, with Nicolas Cage, the greatest <laughs> actor of our time. And they play a King Crimson song in the beginning. And, uh, but other than that, I really didn't have a, a lot of knowledge of, of King Crimson. And this has been like a crash course just going through their discography and listening to the stuff over and over again. And I've really developed an appreciation for them. Whereas before, maybe I, I thought they were kind of just a, a weird band. <laughs> yeah. So, so my history with King Crimson is obviously I'm a little more familiar, I think with the traditional prog rock in general than Gerald would be, but King Crimson is one of the big prog bands that I didn't spend as much time listening to when I first got into Prague. I think I enjoyed Yes and Pink Floyd and even Genesis quite a bit more. And we'll talk about all those bands. Um, but something about King Crimson didn't really click with me until I think even the last couple of years. It's maybe a little bit less accessible and weird to some of those mm -hmm. bands, you know? I mean, it depends on, on the album and all that. Um, yeah. And it's pretty dark too, which I think maybe for me it was something that took a little time to get into. But... Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with even some of the later King Crimson stuff as you probably are since you literally just listened to all of it. Um, yeah. But I love Core of the Crimson King, and it's a really important album. And probably, I know it's not the first, technically the first prog rock album, but it is really the first important big one um, that's really just kind of, well, prog, prog rock, art rock. Um, so I think that's why I want to talk about this one first, because it's probably the most important one that's early on in prog rock. Yeah, and uh, I think that's fair. Um, maybe we actually jump into the the history of yeah, this yeah. album. Um, I mean, as you said, this is a really dark album. And at the time, you know, we're at the late, you know, we're in the Vietnam War, uh, late 60s movement, you know, Haight-Ashbury, Hippies, Woodstock, all that stuff's going on. And uh, so you have a lot of like sunshine and rainbows uh, uh, music <laughs> going on. Uh, but King Crimson is definitely not in that thematic vein it's very as you said it's very dark um and so yeah so how this band basically started was like in august 1967 uh there was a band called uh giles giles and fripp which is a very catchy band name i feel like and uh uh basically giles and giles peter and michael they advertised for a uh organ player 
uh, and they ended up getting Robert Fripp, who was a guitar player, um, <laughs> but he really impressed them. Uh, they recorded an album called The Cheerful Insanity of Giles, Giles, and Fripp, and it didn't really reach commercial success. And if you listen to it, it's definitely, there's a couple King Crimson elements in it, but it does not sound like King Crimson. Yeah. Uh, it sounds more like something from the late 60s. <laughs> uh, but then, so... Uh, attempting to expand their sound, they recruited a man named Ian McDonald and Peter Sinfield. We were talking about if it's Seinfeld or Sinfield. Well, it's just S-I-N, so it's definitely not Seinfeld, like like the show Seinfeld. I, I've heard, I heard somebody say Seinfeld and Sinfield, and so, I don't know, I'm sure somebody will correct Wait, me. Wait, Jerry Seinfeld was in Jerry King Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. was in King Crimson. And uh, it was, he, this was before the show. This is, no, way early. <laughs> Uh, it was a band within a band, like not the show within the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, so Fripp saw uh, this more, he started hearing some jazz-like improvisation from this band called Clouds. He also heard on his radio um, A Day in the Life by the Beatles, and that inspired him to kind of take his music in a different direction. Uh, so he didn't want to follow that pop style of that first album. And uh, he ended up bringing on a singer and guitarist Greg Lake, and said that uh, either Lake should replace Peter or Fripp himself. He said, hey, <laughs> this guy should just replace me because I'm out. I don't want to do this pop music. <laughs> and Peter Giles said it was one of Fripp's cute political moves, quote, uh, and uh, he ended up just leaving. So one of the Fripps leave. And that's what brings us to the first incarnation of um, King Crimson. So they get together in like November 30th, 1968. Yeah, so... Uh, Greg Lake went on to be in Emerson Lake and Palmer, which is uh -huh. another massive early prog band. Um, I'm sure they'll probably come up at some point. They have some interesting stuff as well. You should check out. Uh, it talking to before we go on, I was thinking about the Beatles, um, because the Beatles are often cited as kind of an early precursor to prog, which I think might be interesting to some people because you kind of think of the Beatles as just like a pop group in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Um, but obviously the later Beatles stuff, especially started to get a lot more experimental and interesting. Like that song, a day in a life is really has two completely different sections from each other. Um, one was written by Lennon and one was written by McCartney and it kind of has some of that progressive element where you have like a song that doesn't feel like one thing. It feels like a, a couple of things kind of put together. Um, yeah. And I, I there's think also a lot of experimentation uh, in the sounds, with audio yeah. yeah, and the sounds and such in that song and other Beatles songs. But. Yeah. And I think there's interviews of McCartney and, and saying like, you know, as they went along, they got super bored with the 12 bars blues progressions and the pop song yeah. formats. And they kind of wanted to do something different. So things like Sgt. Pepper and, and some of the later Beatles stuff definitely kind of heads in that direction. So it is. Yeah. It, and I, I was going to say also, I think it's important to acknowledge like the Beatles obviously are doing prog rock stuff, but there's also other oh, yeah, for sure. um, prog bands that exist before King Crimson. And you yeah. kind of touched on that. But I mean, we have, you know, this year, uh, the year 1969, you have a lot of prog bands like Yes has an album. Their mm -hmm. first album is 1969. Uh, Genesis, uh, their first album was also 1969. Mm -hmm. There's a few lesser known ones like Can. I don't know if you've listened to Can. I haven't. <laughs> and before that, you have um, Omega, The Strobs, and Soft Machine, and The Moody Blues. And and also, uh, Pink Floyd was also, their first album was, I believe, 1967. Yeah. Hyper the Gates of Dawn. So I think in part of the reason that we're talking about Court of the Crimson King first, even though those mm -hmm. other bands maybe had big album had albums first, is that I think the big 
like landmark albums for those other bands like Yes and Genesis are later on. Like yes. they're a few years afterwards. You know, it's not till seventy three that Genesis did um selling England by the pound and I think the f- big yes album Fragile was or was that seventy one? Something like that. Anyway. So those are yeah. after Court of the Crimson King, even though they had albums before that. Yeah, and those albums that are before that, yeah, are much more straightforward. Yeah. Um, for sure. Like Pink Floyd was just kind of a straight ahead psychedelic band earlier on. Yeah. Like they did just some really weird stuff. It wasn't until Dark Side of the Moon in seventy three that it kind of really started to get more in the progress. Yeah, the Sid vein. Barrett era. And that's the thing. There's a lot of uh overlap between prog and psychedelic music oh, yeah, at for this sure. time because both are experimenting. Um, but what's interesting about King Crimson is uh, apparently, I don't know if this changed, but at the time they said that they didn't um, do drugs or at least Peter, uh, uh, at least Fripp didn't. Hmm, I think that Sin- Sinfield, I believe, mentioned that he did. He said he was the resident hippie of the band. That's why he wrote all the the, the fun fantasy lyrics and, and such and had like a big say in the art direction. Yeah. And so you have a lot of people that are doing, you know, hallucinogenics that are taking LSD and loving King Crimson, <laughs> but King Crimson itself is not necessarily like a, a Jimi Hendrix or something where they're, they're on hallucinogens. Yeah. We need, we need to time. compile a list of all the famous prog musicians and whether they were doing drugs or not. <laughs> That'd be a great list. There's just some technicality to King Crimson. I'm like, you could not reproduce that if, you know, if you, you were under the influence of LSD, <laughs> but maybe it could, I don't know. Well, yeah, um, that's maybe an interesting thing is like, um, if, if the musicianship gets really technical, like if you're someone who does drugs all the time, you might have a hard time performing the music. Yeah. And I, and but, th- but then again, that's all... why it's interesting. I'd like to see like which one of these prog bands that are, that are really yeah. playing some complicated stuff, which ones were under the influence of drugs. I mean, cause I, their audience was under the influence yeah. of drugs. I say that, Trump, but anyway. then there's, a lot of famous jazz musicians who are ridiculous players that were like, you know, on, on Coke or whatever, every time they play (laughs) heroin or whatever, like, like, uh, Charlie Parker and, and, uh, (laughs) those guys. Um, so, so maybe it depends on the person. Maybe some people need a little bit of, uh, a little bit of drugs in their system to perform. (laughs) What's even, I mean, well, yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. And with Fritt, I, I think it's just more of his education coming out. And I know he had some kind of guru or something later. I didn't look into this too much, but that wasn't until I think the late 70s. Yeah. Um, but at this point, I think he was pretty straight edge and yeah. he was just making really weird music. Well, so. I know I know for myself, because obviously I've performed in lots of bands and a few progressive rock bands, metal bands, um, mm-hmm. like if I was to have more than like even one beer before playing, I think I'd be screwed <laughs> trying to perform <laughs> like playing with the sense of gravity or something. You know, the music is oh, so yeah. technical. That's my progressive metal band, by the way, plug. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, good stuff. Yeah. I feel like I'd have absolutely no chance of performing that stuff properly. If I was any, any sort of uh, state besides just completely <laughs> sober. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you're playing some Led Zeppelin or Beatles music maybe and you have a yeah. beer beforehand, it, it actually can loosen you up. Yeah, and yeah, play it depends. Better. But I mean, being on, you know, these bands like the Grateful Dead play fairly complex stuff. They're jamming uh, a lot of the time, though. It is. It's a lot of jamming. And that's the thing with King Crimson is they have that improvisational do, yeah. element that I, I think gets lost on newer prog, especially prog metal where it's it's very technical and it's very straightforward and king crimson really has these sections where if you listen to say 21st century schizoid man live it's different every time in the middle you know yeah 
And that's maybe, um, I guess that's something we could talk about now is, so with prog rock early on, you have, you have the psychedelic influence and there is the pop and rock influence. Um, but it's kind of really the combination of high art and low art. So you have yes. high art, like is like classical music or jazz, these schooled, more schooled art forms. I guess back then jazz wasn't as schooled as it is now. Um, but these are f- styles of music that require a lot of virtuosity and a lot of studying and training. Um, and they're for people, people who listen to classical music and listen to complex jazz. It's like those people have an understanding they've l- studied and they've learned, you know, it's not something that anyone can just jump into and listen to. So that's like your high art. And then you have the low art of rock music. Um, and Prague really is the combination of those things together. Mm-hmm. And, um, King Crimson is a really good example of that because you have the really improvisational nature of jazz in a lot of these songs. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but like Moonchild, which is 10 minutes of it is literally just like random <laughs> improvising, you know, and just sounds and stuff like a free yeah. jazz kind of jam. But then you have sections um, in a lot of the other songs where things are very orchestrated. You have all the different, the flutes and the clarinets and bass clarinets and saxophones that are all orchestrated like you would have a classical ensemble. So it's mm-hmm. it's that element, but then of course you have the rock music underneath with the guitars and drums and all that. Yeah, and I and I think with uh, Fritt, you know, he's the only constant member of King Crimson and everybody else is kind of expendable. But part of it is his dedication to the 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 highness of, uh, of, of the music. He's very, he's like, I need the highest quality musicians. And when a musician doesn't cut it, he, he makes it known. Um, yeah. And, and so, but yeah, I was thinking, I watched a a video last night of Jethro Tull. Um, it's a a classical flutist reacts to Jethro Tull (laughs) who also had his album out during this time is, and is considered progress. But he's, his solos are a perfect example of that high meets low. I mean, he's wearing a ridiculous like jumpsuit. Typically he looks like a maniac, Yeah. but then he starts playing flute and it's random. He's doing vocalizations. He's making pig snorts in between his flute, (laughs) but then he's also like, we'll start, he'll go into like a Bach melody and it's like beautiful. And he's, he's demonstrating, he's like, I'm the best flute player ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And that's really that high versus low of prog is in that. So, we're going to, I'm sure we'll break the album down a little bit more song by song, right. but if I, for my overall opinion, since we're talking about flute, the thing I dislike the most on Court of the Crimson King is the flute. Oh yeah. <laughs> like no, the overuse gets... of the flute. Um, it's not that I dislike the flute, but for some reason, the flute out of all the woodwind or brass instruments is one of the ones that I think doesn't blend with rock music as well. Like saxophone mm-hmm. blends a lot more naturally with rock music in my opinion. Um, as well as like the bass clarinet because there's quite a bit of that on Court of the Crimson King. Like those sounds I think tend to work a little bit bit better with the rock music. Um, yep. For some reason that the timbre of the flute just doesn't work for me. That's not to say it's bad or anything. It's it's one of the reasons I'm not a big Jethro Tull fan. And see, um, I, I haven't listened to Jethro Tull enough to make an analysis that analysis like yeah. i see what you're saying that's but... a, this is totally my opinion by the way yeah, if you yeah, love yeah. the flute it's, in Korean, so that's objective truth then huh? yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i am the prog school teacher the prog so... you're the teacher <laughs> whatever you say teach yeah yeah my opinion <laughs> is fact um, yeah so maybe i'll, I'll go through the uh just kind of the intro of this and then yeah, we yeah. can talk about the uh the actual song yeah, so for sure so basically, these the new group gets together. Um, you have Lake, Sinfield, one of the Frips, uh, and uh, Peter Giles. Um, they named their band King Crimson, and I read a lot of different 
tales about this. Uh, Sinfield says that it's a take on Beelzebub. It's one of his, uh, Beelzebub is one of the uh, pr- uh, Prince of Demons, basically Satan. Yeah. And uh, they named him King Crimson after that, uh, which, uh, but then I also saw like McDonald said, he's like, I didn't care what the name was. He said, anything was better than Giles, Giles and Fripp. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, yeah. So then, then you have a breakout. Uh, so, so they rehearsed for the first time, January 13th, 1969. Okay. Uh, Ju- so they haven't had an album out yet. Uh, July 5th, the Rolling Stones come back together uh, and play for the first time live in, I believe, two years because Brian Jones had passed away as a member of the Rolling Stones. And they played in Hyde Park in London before 500,000 people and uh, King Crimson opened up for the Rolling okay. Stones. I have that image up on screen if you want to see that. Um, yeah, and you can watch th- – there's actually – you can watch this live video on YouTube. Uh, they also recorded this whole um, concert, and you can listen to them. Uh, some of the tracks are played a little bit faster yeah. or, and, and maybe a little bit sloppy, but it's cause these songs, they literally, you know, just made. Well, I mean, so, that's the nature of live. Nervous also. Yeah. That's yeah. the nature of live performance. I mean, I imagine if this is their breakout concert, they've never played before in front no, of 500,000 500, people. I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd be, be nervous. super nervous too. Um, that's crazy because you think about what's that, like seven, six months after they got together. How do you yeah. open for the Rolling Stones in six months? <laughs> Need a figure. Especially when Giles, Giles and Fritt was your, you know, previous and gig, they weren't that big of an artist. Like it's weird. They no. got, they got lucky on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good question. I, I would be curious if somebody knows why but exactly. Maybe someone knew someone, you know, connections. I don't know. Um, yeah. as someone who, uh, has played many gigs and in, been in many bands, like those sort of opportunities don't just come up out of nowhere no. typically. No, no, no. Um, so, so yeah, so they play this, this concert and it's important to note that I, I saw some, in, um, watching King Crimson live is kind of where it's at. Like when we listen to the album, we're not getting the whole thing. And I, and Fripp, yeah. I believe it was Fripp even says this himself where he says that, um, uh, an al- a, a song on the album is like a letter and playing it live is like, or is like writing a letter to your friend and playing it live is like seeing your friend in person. And when you watch videos on YouTube of say King Crimson playing you really get that impression where it's really a uh it's almost performance art in a lot of ways yeah and i think i mean a lot of early rock music is like that not just prog rock um you think about zeppelin a lot of their uh, live dvds and albums and stuff there's so much improvisation and jamming and everything's way different um of yeah. course then you have all the blues guys you know if like if you watch a steve ray vaughn concert or something it's like completely different every single time so um and then jazz which is based on improvisation these are like, in a lot of ways, it's live music, really. It's like a live music, but they had to have a recorded version of it. So that's the that's the one that lasts, which is kind of interesting because it's so different every time they would play live. Um, yeah. And that contrasts music now where things are written for the studio, right? And everything yeah. is planned out. And then when a band goes to perform, for the most part, newer artists are performing exactly like the record like they want to make it sound exactly like the record you know yeah it's a click track you got yep. uh lips uh lip syncing you have you well know, for the pop uh, artists yeah you have the lip syncing yeah, stuff and yeah. or even in the prog world you know i've done a lot of progressive metal concerts opening for bands it's like they're having they have backing tracks with all the orchestration and sometimes even like backing vocals or like if the bass player can't make it on the tour the bass is like just coming through a computer so um yeah. it's very different from it's interesting because it's coming from the same like it's the same style of music, right? I mean, we call it prog or whatever, but you have one mm-hmm. band where it's like all improvisation. And then one thing where it's like, it might as well just be a classical ensemble. Cause you're playing exactly the same way every time, you know? 
I know, and I, I feel like, um, I mean, I understand the the utility of that and having 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 those things like backing tracks and stuff. But I do feel like it really sucks a lot of the life out of the music. It makes it less organic um, because yeah. I think if you get down to the roots of, of music, it's it's about a, a collective experience that that people are sharing. And I feel like that if it's it's more improvisational or it's more loose, it really adds some life to it, I guess. But yeah, but you know, I think it depends. I think about everything that I write for the prog school, like all the original music I'm doing, like I'm doing it by myself. So I have to do that. Right. I have no choice. Like I have to do it on a grid. I have to use virtual instruments. Like I don't have other people helping me. So in a lot of ways, the technology and that more rigid element is helping people like me to create yes. music by myself. Um, whereas I couldn't have done that 50 years ago. I've needed a whole band and I would have, you know what I mean? To make this stuff happen. Yeah. Um, so there is like, there's obviously really good things about the technology, but I yes. do agree that like some of the organic element is left out of newer music. And a lot of that is production too. I mean, that's something to talk about if we're talking about listening to these older albums is like, you have to go into it realizing that the production is not nearly as good as production is now. Um, you know, you're not going to get as crisp playing even in a lot of cases, a lot of stuff is being recorded live as a band, you no know, click tracks, um, you're not going to get like perfectly tuned vocals all the time. Um, just the overall sound of it's not going to be as polished as you would get with a modern album. Yeah. Um, and that can be good and bad, just like the improvisation part of it. Right. Well, and I still, I mean, even if you watch recent King Crimson concerts, I'm not sure what's, I know they have like inner ears and things like that, but it's, it looks to me like there is no backing track and oh, they, I doubt and it. Yeah, they still no have way. they still have improvisational parts, which, which again you don't see. You know, like I'm wearing my Haken shirt. I don't know how much of a Haken live show is improvised, if any of it is. Not much actually. of it, maybe a few <laughs> yeah. sections, but yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny because Haken is one of those bands where I feel like compared to some of your more technical like metal bands they have a little bit more of an organic sound, even though it's everything's composed. Um, yep. But yeah, they, they're not doing like a lot of improvisation live. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's something else, else I was thinking of with that. It'll come back Probably to me. Recording studio stuff. <laughs> recording studio. Well, I, yeah. I was going to say, so when this band came out though, the sound of their making, I mean, they play 21st century schizoid man, Hyde Park, July, 1969, right? Yeah. Right at the peak of the hippie movement. They're playing this song that's, that's, you know, far ahead of its time. And if you look at people's reactions, uh, how they describe their reactions to King Crimson when it first comes out live, like typically the Rolling Stones player song, everybody would clap. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Know? when King Crimson would play a live show, like they'd get done and the people would just be completely silent. Cause they're like, what was that? Like they were seriously <laughs> awestruck. Um, and I think that that's fascinating. And, and it really, I mean, they're just ahead of their time. You can listen to bands today. Oh, or from the nineties. I was thinking more, but like Radiohead oh, yeah. and, and O'Toole and you in Primus and you hear this, like, Oh, they, they stole that from, king crimson yeah. you know <laughs> oh yeah and, and that i mean we'll see that as we go along like all these these uh kind of first wave of the prog bands it's like their influence is very clearly heard on all the later stuff you know yeah um like i believe the remastered version that i have been listening to because that's the one i've been streaming is actually i want to say that stephen wilson from porcupine tree and all his solo stuff that he actually was involved in the remastering and remixing of it 
Yes, of and of, uh, of also of Genesis, I believe. Right? Uh, he's done some Gentle or Giant. Gentle Giant, that's so, what it was. Which yeah. we're definitely going to have to do a Gentle Giant yeah. episode because they're so weird and I love Gentle Giant. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to have one thing. Yeah, yeah. And then how about we break down. Yeah, we'll go through all the songs here. And- song, yeah. So, so basically, the Court of the Crimson King comes out after this Hyde Park thing. They get really big. Court of the Crimson King is released October 10th, 1969 on Island Records. Uh, interestingly, uh, this is released two weeks after the Beatles' Abbey Road okay. uh, and two weeks before Led Zeppelin II, which is a really interesting release date. And it did fairly well, considering that those two albums were out. Um, I also made a playlist, and you can search this on Spotify. It's this Prog School podcast. We'll have it linked. Uh, yeah, Cri- uh, King Crimson. You should be able to find it. And I put some of those songs on there just so you uh, you can hear the contrast of where King Crimson kind of fits in. Um, so it, re- it received public compliments from Pete Townshend. He called the album a uncanny masterpiece. Uh, it, it, the big things that moved away from the contemporary kind of British American blues and introduced this more <clears throat> kind of uh, sound kind of from antiquity. Uh, drew a wide range of influences from romantic, modernist, classical, psychedelic rock, folk, jazz, even military music, and just straight up ambient improvisation. Uh, that The album art, as far as for the album, I thought this was kind of interesting, is that on the front, you have the 21st century schizoid man. And he's very much like, um, if you've seen, do you know the painting... It's, I think it's Edward Munch. Is that his name? Edward Munch. And it has the guy screaming on the bridge. You know what I'm talking about? And he looks kind of ghost-like. Yeah, I think if I saw it, I'd probably recognize it. It's, it's a famous, it's just called The Scream. And, yeah. uh, uh, but basically, it, it's modern man uh, being torn, torn apart by modernity. And if you open up the album art and you look at the back, you can see the schizoid man being kind of pulled by his cheek into yeah. like the abyss. I have that up modern. on the screen if you're watching this on YouTube. Like I... I purposely put the back on there too so you could see how he's getting pulled back so. yeah so this this album art was done by barry Godbear, and it's only an only album art he ever did he was a student because he died of a heart attack at the age of 24 in wow. 1970 right after it was released okay. but the band said uh when they opened it uh uh when they saw the album art for the first time they said we all stood around it and it was like something out of a treasure out of Treasure Island, where you're all standing around a bow of jewels and treasure. Uh, this, I won't say that, but blanking face <laughs> screamed up at us from the floor, and what it said to us was "Schizoid Man," the very track we'd all been working on. It was as if the three, as it was as if there was magic going on. Sorry, the font was really bad on that. It was hard to read. So yeah, that brings us to the actual um, album. So I think t- touching on the artwork work oh, really sure, quickly. Yeah. Um, I feel like if I'm thinking about the artwork from s- sort of your famous prog album, prog rock albums, I feel like this is the most like striking, like not like as in like it's the most beautiful, but it's definitely the most like, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, shocking. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like I, I, and that was, they said to the artists, like, the only thing is that we needed to stick out from the other albums. And I would even say to this day, that image still does that. And yeah. I would say it's iconic of prog yeah. rock. I mean, don't, I, I think on your intro, don't you? Yeah, it's the... the first. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. pops, my logo pops up first and then a picture and then me and then this album cover. Because yeah. I think it's like the image of it as much as the album is kind of an iconic prog rock thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, 
and look staring staring at it right now is like it's kind of creepy <laughs> just like looking it, at it. it's weird it's I weird mean, it's really it, weird but it, it, it does fit with the music really well you know and the kind of the oh vibe. totally and and just a you know schizoid i think i put the i have the definition of schizoid um i mean obviously this is referencing schizophrenia but schizoid personality disorder which this person is supposed to have okay is a personality disorder characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, a tendency toward a solitary or sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. Um, this is the part that I think really summarizes this album, though, is that um, they feel a person who is has schizoid disorder feels as though they are an observer rather than a participant mm. in life. A lot of the lyrics in this album have to do with like being disconnected or you're talking to the wind or you see yourself from the outside looking in. A lot of the lyrics have to do with that that sensation of being like disembodied. Yeah, I yeah. Guess. Cool. All right, well, let's get into the songs then. Sure, yeah. So there's uh, only five tracks on this album. And, you know, I think... How long is the album overall? It's about fifty minutes, roughly. Yeah, it's pretty long for five tracks. The shortest yeah, well, tracks I mean like that's minutes, that's right? pretty typical for prog. I mean, as we go forward, you'll see that long songs are are a very uh, kind of important element of progressive music in general. Um, fifty minutes is actually not that long for a prog album. I know back back then that was kind of typical, based on how long you how much music you could put on a you know a vinyl. Um, you know, prog albums now are usually at least that long. But mm-hmm. the Schizoid Man is our first song, 21st Century Schizoid Man. And this is either this one or Court of the Crimson King is probably their most famous tune. I don't know oh, which yeah. one pops up first as far as like if you search them on streaming services or whatever. I, I think because of, uh, I can't remember, Kanye's West, Kanye West song in 2010. Oh, yeah. sampled yeah. this track. And, and I think that really put this as okay. the most popular yeah, King Crimson song. It also has a lot more energy. Like, maybe that's not the right word, but it's it's a more upbeat and faster one than Court of the Crimson King. So it's probably this one probably takes the takes the crown as the most popular King Crimson song. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I, as I was listening to this album, because I listened to it quite a few times before we were filming this, I was struck by this being the first big prog rock album how little rock there was kind of on the album overall. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, de- there's definitely, I mean, you have the drums and the guitars kind of throughout the whole album. So there's definitely like a rock band element to it, but yeah. it doesn't feel that much like rock music, especially of the time. You mentioned that Led Zeppelin comes out, Led Zeppelin two comes out two weeks after that. And like, this is so different from that as far oh, as yeah. like, there's way it's not nearly as, as, as like rock <laughs> or something well, like that. I, I guess, you know, the first and last track, the Schizoid Man and the Crimson, Court of the Crimson yep. King are definitely rock. Like, they're heavy. I mean, Court of the Crimson King is... Court of the Crimson uh, King is, is much heavier, yeah. I'm thinking about, I, like, yeah, the middle tracks. but Yeah, those middle tracks, though, are definitely more um, very laid back, very classical sounding, very, like, uh, Renaissance-esque yeah. almost. With it is flute. interesting, like how bands decide to like pace their albums energy wise, you know, cause here you have mm-hmm. this high energy at the beginning and then there's, you know, pretty high energy at the very end too, but the middle is kind of just like floats through, you know? It, yeah. Uh, that's a really good way of describing it. Yeah. Um, I, I would say schizoid man though. I mean, that riff in the dynamic changes are well way ahead of their time, but oh, also yeah. heavy, not just for that time, but just heavy in general. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it was interesting. We're talking about how 
King Crimson kind of went away from that sort of British rock blues sound. Um, mm-hmm. But this first main riff of Schizoid Man it literally uses a blues scale. Right, right, right. So it's really funny. It'd be like, well, it's not bluesy at all, but it's like there still has some of that element, you know. Um, so I wonder, did they intentionally do that just because they're like, this is going to be our popular track? Well, not necessarily. I think the pentatonic blues scale, the minor blues scale, is like it's an essential sound of pretty much modern music in general. It's not just... Mm-hmm blues right um and it's the foundation for all rock music too so i think that sound makes its way into rock music just even if they're not thinking about it in a lot of ways but Um, is there is there anything interesting with the scale say they use maybe a chord that doesn't fit in or they're so so there's these there the chromatic power chords at the end of the those are like chromatic power chords so i guess if you were to look at that the some of the notes go outside of the blue scale. Um, there's something with how it's like com- how it's put together too, right? It doesn't feel like they're just running through a blue scale necessarily. Mm-hmm. It kind of has that heaviness to it. Um, also, the blues. This is kind of getting theoretical again. The blues, if you're doing a straight blues, would be you'd lo- use a minor blue scale like this, but it would be over a dominant seven chord, which is more like a which has a major third in it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to understand any of this probably. But I, I get what you're saying. Like, but this is actually using the minor blue scale over a minor chord. So it definitely has a little bit of that darker sound overall. Um, yeah, but it's like as far as, you know, like Black Sabbath, they do the flatted fifth, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And there's not necessarily any of that. Oh, yeah, no, on. yeah, no. There's the flatted fifth. The flatted fifth is in the blue scale naturally. Right, Like it's right, part of the right. scale. So that chromatic power chord, dun, 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 that second chord on the way up, that is a power chord built off of the flatted fifth. So it definitely right, has that's what that, I mean. Yeah. yeah, but it seems like they uh, the different, I guess, with Black Sabbath, right, they're hanging on the flatted fifth whereas it, it would be run past by say rolling stones doing oh yeah for sure um, right they're not gonna like chill out on it for a while and in and, and this king crimson riff they you know kind of use it a little bit more than you know led zeppelin would or something like that um right. the other thing is at the beginning right off the bat you have these big drum fills right so there's like virtuosity coming in like literally right away like these triplets um and there is a little bit of that triplet kind of feel to it, especially with these drum fills. So you do have a little bit of the the triplets kind of bring a little bit of the loose swing vibe to it almost in some ways. So it's mm-hmm. not going to feel like super, it doesn't feel super regimented. Like I, I get some of that jazz vibe right off the bat, even though it's definitely rock. Um, the other thing that really does that is the instrument instrumentation, all the horns, the orchestration. So as far as, uh, what kind of other instruments we have here? Ian McDonald played saxophone, flute, clarinet, bass clarinet, and then he also did the mellotron, harpsichord, piano, organ, and a vibraphone too. So it's all the so the sax, flute, clarinet, and bass clarinet. You're going to hear a lot of those throughout the album, and right off the bat, you get the saxophone and stuff. It's kind of it feels like uh, part of a jazz ensemble, you know, on top of of this kind of heavy riff. From from what I read online, it seemed like the Mellotron uh, on this album was really what stood out. Like it was a newer instrument, um, yeah, so and the, it had been used. What's the the uh, Strawberry Fields? Yeah, Forever? Strawberry Fields is that, Forever yep. is the is the big first one for the Mellotron. But yeah. it was really the prog bands that took it to the next level. Like something about the sound of it, you'll hear a ton of it, especially when like uh, Epitaph and a few of those later songs. Like uh, that Mellotron becomes a really important sound. Um, yeah, it, just in general. So. 
that I would definitely look out for that if you're listening through the album because I think that's an important important element. Well, so you were saying it's a lot of rock, but I mean, obviously the the bridge is very much jazz, and and also uh, I don't want to discount uh, the drumming. Uh, Michael Giles's drumming is really yeah great. <laughs> so so there's one thing about prog rock in general, and I'm, I was going to mention this earlier, but I forgot. Um, and we'll see this with pretty much any prog band is like every single person member of the band has to be very good at what they do. Um, if you think about other styles of music, that's not always the case. Like if you think about a punk band, it's like maybe the drummer has to be really good, but the guitar players, are, it doesn't really matter. Right. It's like the style of music doesn't require them to be like virtuosic players. Not that they, you know, you want to be able to write interesting stuff, no matter what kind of music you're doing, but right. Something about prog rock, because it has that high art element, it like requires all the players to be really good at what they do. Like later on this song, was it like 440 that area? There's all these fast unison runs between literally yes. every single instrument. But yeah, but and like none of them can be a slouch to be able to do any of that stuff, right? You have to all be able to perform yeah. that that together, um, and that's very much a jazz thing if you think about uh, a lot of famous jazz combos, like the all the players are are ripping a melody like in unison together, you know. Yeah. But also even, you know, at that part of the song, uh, it seems, I'm not sure, maybe you can break this down, but like, you know, the song goes through its typical structure, but then it hits this point in the bridge where it's sort of like, okay, here's our improvisational jazz component. And and when they play live, they might stretch this song yeah. out to be, you know, 10 minutes of just messing around. But then they have like a cue uh, right before what you were talking about that's sort of like, okay, let's finish the song. Yeah, you know? so that instrumental part in the middle is interesting. Uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, it kind of is like the prototypical prog instrumental. So a lot of progressive rock bands, metal bands, they have vocalists. It's like there'll be vocal sections, the beginning and the end. And a lot of times there'll be like a huge instrumental section in the middle where everyone just goes crazy, you know, and that can be all sorts of different things. Um, so that really kind of starts right off the bat here in the first song of this probably most famous early prog album. Um, yeah. So those elements are coming in right away, and those things are going to be kind of used later on too. Um, there is a, there's like a combination of composed ideas here and the improvisation. So right off the bat, you have the unison runs between guitar and saxophone when this section kicks in, and you have like an actual walking bass line almost underneath yeah. there, which is very much like a jazz thing. I mean, it's not a, it's not a straight like jazz style walking bass line, but it's close. Um, and then it goes into the improvisation. We have these guitar solo, and then it's like a weird synth solo. Um, and I can imagine those sections are probably where I'd have to watch more live videos of the song, where those are where they would extend that stuff. And then at about four minutes, 30 seconds, all the composed stuff starts to kick back in on the album. Um, so when you're doing... Yeah, and when when you, I was in high school, I used to listen to Primus. That's like yeah. what inspired me to pick up the bass. And uh, Primus would do that. I watched their live shows. I'm like, oh, this is totally different. And uh, I realized how influenced Primus was by King Crimson and that they, yeah. they do the, the same thing. So you still see bands do that. But that's what's interesting with um, prog metal, say. they don't. We talked about this earlier, but they don't do that. And you don't really see a lot of that complex improvisation unless you go to more of a, like a psychedelic concert. Like you go to Bonnaroo or you go to like, yeah. you know, something like that. Then you see bands like, um, you know, Umphreys McGee or Primus or uh, yeah, and they're they're much know, like more Mo. in the they're much yeah, more they're in the jam psychedelic. yeah, they're in like the jam rock kind of vein too, especially like Umphreys McGee. Um, yeah, but complex still. Oh I guess yeah, for sure. Definitely to separate them from say like, um, I don't know your typical oh yeah, yeah, yeah. jam rock band. <laughs> it's not like a blues jam rock band or something. Um, yeah, yeah. 
you know, and, and I've seen Dream Theater a couple of times and there was a few times where they did really long sort of improv areas and and maybe they planned how long they were going to do it, but it was different from the album. It wasn't like they just did the album straight through. Um, you know, there was a few places where things would be extended or whatever, but those are very much like planned out. You know, it wasn't as free as it would probably be in this case, you know. Um, the other cool thing about this instrumental section and just the song in general is you have these two different tempos. So you have this, it's actually slower during all the vocal sections in this middle parts faster. Right. And they kind of like, they ramp up into the faster section at first. And then when they come out of it, it's literally like a direct tempo change back to the slower mm-hmm. tempo. It's um, awesome. It's right back in that riff and it really slows it down. Like you can really, you know, soak it in You're, You take a, take a breath as it enters into yeah, and, big and riff. Tempo yeah. changes are are really good at that right if you like get something slower it's like bam all of a sudden it gets like heavier right off the bat you know yeah i was gonna ask you actually um what's he doing with the vocals exactly i mean they're very distorted is that just like on his on a preamp or i'm wondering you know that's the kind of stuff that these days you do in post so you would record it and then you distort it you know after the fact um it is very possible back then i maybe should have researched this but um that they could have had some sort of yeah, they could they could just be pushing the preamp that the mic is going into super hard, the, the distortion, um, or it could be a you know there's crazy things you can do with vocals. You could run it through guitar pedals and stuff. Like there's lots of ways you could do that. That um, typically, if you were going to try to get that sound, now you just do it in post. But well, because I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back and check, but that they in the live Hyde Park record uh, recording that the vocals are still distorted. On this web, on Rolling Stone, it says the vocal effect was an idea that we had to actually overload the control console. Okay. Yeah. So they're just and like. So it caused it to be distorted electronically. Yeah. So they're just pushing so much signal into it that it's distorting. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's. And then uh, there's the cool part at the end of the song where it like just goes crazy and like, ah, like explodes into yeah. like ridiculousness. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, as far as the lyrics, I kind of already mentioned this. Um, I have these up on the screen too, but. Uh, the lyrics? Yeah, for no, you can't okay, see. I can't them, see. No, <laughs> you can't see the lyrics, but everyone else can. Well, watching. so Sinfield, I think he wrote most of these, or at he least did. he um, wrote all I of think, them. Yeah, yeah, I think this was a, somewhat of a collaborative effort, though, where they were sitting around, and so when it says, you know, like um, cat's foot, iron claw, they were sort of shouting things out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sinfield was just documenting it, and he said, uh, uh. Lyrically, Sinfield was getting, this is from loudersound.com, this article on King Crimson. says, lyrically, Sinfield was getting a feel for what the band's music seemed to express. It fitted with nastiness of the human condition and war and stuff, he says. (laughs) I wanted the words to sound violent and aggressive. Cat's foot, iron claw. It's the world tearing itself to pieces. And it it very much has that sense of apocalypse or violence. Um, and which many people think that this is like an anti-Vietnam War yeah. song. Well, I mean, the uh, end as the end of the song I just talked about, it literally like explodes into yeah. you know something else, like a like a nuclear bomb or something. Um, yeah, these lyrics are dark. Like if you're reading them, I'm gonna pull up here. Politicians' funeral pyre, innocents raped with napalm fire. Like that's like yeah, that's like that's, serious stuff. That sounds like death brutal. metal lyrics to me. <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Like you could just do these lyrics as a death scene. Yeah, seriously, scary. Um, No, but super dark, especially for the time period, and and I think it's cool, you know. Well, I love. I mean, you have "Come Together" is like the track from the Beatles, yeah, yeah. Abbey Road. It's like "Come Together," yeah. That all of a sudden you listen to this, it's like politicians burning on a funeral pyre. (laughs) 
rah, you know, it's just, yeah. it's great. That's it's good. just totally different. Yeah. So, um, yeah, probably... so I don't, did you have more on schizoid? No, no. I mean, I, we talked a lot on that, but that's an important one. Um, and I think yeah. for myself, um, I don't know which songs stood out the most, stand out the most to you. I, I obviously, for, for me, obviously schizoid man and, and core of the crimson King are the ones that I think are maybe the most memorable just in general. Yes. I, yeah, I think so as well. And the other one, the other song that I really like is Epitaph out of the, in, in the, not that the other two songs aren't good too, but those are the ones that really stand out to me personally. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I mean, like you have this sort of apocalypse that's happening in Schizoid Man, you know, like everything's destroyed. And then those next three songs are like post-apocalyptic yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a sense uh, where the content is very much about like meaninglessness and confusion and those kind of things. And, and going back to being uh schizoid, it, it also reflects some of those traits as well. Yeah. But yeah. They're definitely, like you said, they're not rock. Like they're very medieval almost sounding. I would say there uh, is an interesting like Renaissance medieval quality to some of this mm-hmm. early prog. Like we mentioned general giant earlier, but if we talk about them, like there's all sorts of stuff that they do too. It's, it just feels like you're stepping back into some sort of like, uh, you know, medieval time. It's very yeah. interesting. I guess well, the- even I think one of the bandmates of King Crimson, I can't remember, but he said, uh, uh, they actually don't know who said this, but somebody said this to Fripp and he's like, I'm tired of playing all that airy fairy. And then he, uh, you know, <laughs> poop, it, but he didn't say, yeah, poop. yeah. Uh, and I feel like, uh, specifically Moonchild is like in that camp. Yeah, oh yeah. Even very much so. It, it's, it's good music. It's just not, it's not rock by any means, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I guess maybe that's like a folk element too, because mm-hmm. there is like a, like a folks music element to some of this as well. Um, especially like, you get a lot of acoustic guitar in like these middle tracks too and stuff. And, and, and then of course the flute, which I mentioned earlier. So that brings us to, yeah. I talk to the wind, which is the second yeah. one, second song. Um, and that is very flute heavy, which might be one of the reasons as I mentioned earlier, that this isn't one of my favorite songs. Um, right. It's a nice song. I mean, there's nice melodies in here and, um, there's some interesting stuff going on. It's a little more straightforward as far as structure goes with like a verse and a chorus. Um, mm-hmm. but there's some extended kind of jamming with the flute solo at the end and all that. Um, but I think there's a nice contrast between this and schizoid man, which is a little more complex and over the top. And a lot of times it's nice to have something to bring you down from that. Right. If you, if your entire album is kind of just one thing, whatever that thing happens to be, it can get kind of taxing after a while. So, and, and so what are the in- instruments obviously you have the flute in the intro, but, uh, what are the other instruments? Is that the Mellotron at the beginning? There, there is, just... yeah, there's some Mellotron. Um, and I can't remember what other, uh, orchestration instruments are in there. There's a few well, I, ones, but... I'm, I'm listening to it through my head. Oh, okay. So there talk you go. about it. So I can, but I know it has vibraphone. Oh I can yeah. hear yeah. that. But then there's this, uh, sound. I'm not sure if it's like an oboe or the Mellotron, uh, or, yeah. So well, I'm it could really be sure. it could be um clarinet probably. There's no oboe. So, you have the clarinet okay. in the, like the bass clarinet happens a lot on Epitaph. You get that nice That's... low low sound. Um mm-hmm. but the clarinet is there's some clarinet on this one too. The clarinet to me is it's another high woodwind instrument like the flute, but it it I think blends with the rock band instruments a little bit better to my ears, but um, yeah, because because it's like a mid-range sound. It doesn't or... have the like piercing high end quite as much the clarinet. I mean, it can depending right. on if, if you're playing up high, but it doesn't like kind of naturally cut through as much as a flute does. Right. Um, 
there are some vocal harmonies right off the bat in this song too which are cool um one thing vocally just in general in this album um there's typically in each song i think every single song there's only like a verse and a chorus for each for vocally for every single song and Mm -hmm. like everything else is filled in with instrumental sections so there's quite a bit i never noticed that that's true yeah there's a lot of instrumental sections throughout and I think especially when we listen to some of the other early prog bands is those bands will be more vocal heavy um, or have more vocal sections or more vocal harmonies or layers and stuff. So King Crimson is fairly in this album, just in this album I'm talking about, obviously, um, is very more sparse on the vocals in general. Right. There's quite a few vocals on uh, Court of the Crimson King, like some of those big "Ah," all that stuff. Yeah, Yeah. But like on the rest of these songs, it's like. There's either one voice or maybe maybe there's one extra harmony in spots too, and there's just a verse and a chorus, and then everything else is kind of filled in with instrumentation. So, right, um, yeah, that's that. yeah, and I mean lyrically, I mean this song I, I said has some of the schizoid um, aspects, but it talks a lot about not trusting authority, uh, not having a, a clear direction, uh, even sort of accepting meaninglessness, and even though it's very chipper. Uh, music. Oh, that's the right adjective to use. Um, you know, with the flute, like I could see like birds landing on you, you know, kind of thing. Um, the content is very nihilistic, yeah. like what he's what he's talking about. You know, everything is delusion and confusion. He can't be instructed or conducted. He just talks to the wind, yeah. which is kind of a throwback to like uh, you know uh, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament of yeah. you know everything's meaningless, meaningless yeah. just wind. Uh, uh, he t- at the end, I think it says the late man has been everywhere, but the straight man has never pondered these things. Mm. And it's sort of the idea of like stepping out of yourself and reflecting the straight man is like your average businessman. Yeah. He just goes along with his character. Whereas the late man has been everywhere and that he's been sort of uh, disembodied. He's, he's yeah. schizoid in a way. And so, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting that it sounds so medieval and happy somewhat. There's some minor stuff going so, on in there. So the, the chords are interesting. Yeah, yeah. The chords are interesting yeah. and play into this. So the verse and chorus both start on an E major chord. But then okay. literally the second chord in the song is the E minor. So it goes from E major to E minor. And right. that kind of happens throughout the song. So it's either using chords from E major or chords from E minor. And that's called borrowing from a parallel minor key, meaning they mm. start on the same note. Um, so borrowing, so you're in E major, I guess you call it that cause you start on that, but then you're going to borrow all these different chords from E minor. So it's really a, a combination of major and minor. So it has like some of that, like uplifting kind of vibe, especially with the flute, but then you get these minor chords, like right off the bat. So it's a, kind of an interesting combination of the two things. It is. So, and when they do that, I mean, effectively the whole band is transitioning from the E major to the E yeah. minor. It's yeah, not like you have a mixing of notes right because that would just sound terrible i know it's kind of a dumb question to ask no no yeah no no. the whole band's gonna move <laughs> along i mean you can right, you right. can do two chords stacked on top of each other if you want the dissonance um right but no the whole the whole band's moving the this is called parallel moving to a parallel minor key or you could call it modal mixture that's another thing to do i have a prog school lesson coming up on that soon by the way <laughs> um it does it really well because it does create this atmosphere yeah like i said it sounds happy in some parts but it's also like depressing too it also keeps it mixture. it keeps it from being too much of a kind of like cliche major chord progressions like a pop song chord progression they're not using complex chords necessarily but because they're kind of going between major and minor you're not going to get that uh you're not gonna get the feeling of like oh i know exactly where this next chord's going or whatever 
Right. I also, I guess the one other thing is just the impressiveness of going from Schizoid Man to this song. Cause like dynamically they're totally different. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you think, I think overall the dynamics, so you have loud song and then this is a softer song. And then Epitaph is a slower song, but it's a much louder song. And then you're down again in Moonchild and you're back up at Court of the Crimson King. So there is a nice flow as far as how the dynamics kind of work overall. Um, so what is going on in Epitaph? Uh, unless there's more so, you want to no, talk about. No, no, no. We should move on. Cause, wind. Yeah. Because we're taking a long time with some of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm getting into this and I think about this things. No, that's fine. I, so yeah, that's, Epitaph that's does lean heavily on that Mellotron, especially at the beginning. And the Mellotron, in a lot of ways, is kind of almost taking the role of, in this case, like a symphony or an orchestra or something. It's creating a yes. massive sound. So one thing about Epitaph in general is just it, it feels more grandiose to me like just in general um and the mellotron is a big part of that you kind of get i think you get a lot more orchestration in general in this song than is it overlaid like um did they do multiple tracks of the mellotron in the studio version to make it sound big like they that, may have know? um the thing is like obviously uh the what is it? e mcdonald yeah he's he's doing yeah the keyboards and the or and the orchestral instruments so if you hear those things at the same time obviously those things when he has to overlay one of them um so typically how an older band would do it is like you have the main elements of the band or as many people as possible playing live right and then mm -hmm. if you need to you can overdub stuff on top of it so if you need to overdub different instruments or maybe replace a part or add another vocal so which is different than how you'd record now where literally every person will just record separately you know right for an album and they and they do that i mean in, in their live shows they have three drummers is their i think is their current iteration yeah so of King crimson <laughs> so and one of them is gavin harrison which is one of my favorite drummers um right yeah and in live a lot of times prog bands will bring on an, an auxiliary player like to come in and just play some extra instruments even if they're not part of the band um i know transatlantic since that album came out last week i was thinking about that uh they yeah. have uh, an awesome guy who'll come in and do auxiliary stuff and play guitar and random keyboards and sing just for live concerts, you know, to kind of fill yeah. in. Cause on the album, there's so many parts that the four guys can't play all the parts. So it, it's a similar thing with, with a lot of the prog bands. Okay. Uh, so there's like this, uh, kind of funeral March dirge type feel too throughout this whole song, especially in the verses you have like the drums doing like what feels like a funeral March kind of thing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's what I mean. That's what an epitaph, oh yeah, obviously yeah, is, course. and all that. And so, if the I mean, mu the music is matching the lyrics in the, that respect. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, I've, there's some really good lyrics. I, this song is great, actually. I love this uh, song. This, is, this is yeah, like confusion will be my epitaph. You know, when he yep. reaches the end of his life, there was no meaning. Again, this like nihilistic message. Uh, you know, the war and the violence of the world. He'll be crying after it is all over, uh, and then he says. Uh, the lyrics that really stuck out to me in this is knowledge is a deadly friend when no one sets the rules. Yeah. The fate of all mankind I see is in the hand of hands of fools. Uh, meaning like you need clear boundaries on knowledge or you can, you know, build things like the nuclear bomb or, you know, humanity could destroy itself with its own knowledge if it doesn't have a clear direction. Yeah. And I thought that was, I mean, it's really cool lyrics. <laughs> no, it's great lyrics. And, and this song has, as opposed to the, talk to the wind which didn't feel like it had as much dynamic kind of contrast within the song itself this one mm -hmm. does i mean there's a lot of building and and coming back down and um it works well with with the lyrics and yeah i mean there's maybe not too much to say about this song you know it's a long song um cool orchestration uh, lots of acoustic guitar which is cool as well 
Yeah. Um, lots of. So, Moonchild. Moonchild. So this is where it gets really weird. It gets weird. So, this song starts <laughs> as like a really basic kind of. Uh, you mentioned it, this, this one sounds kind of uh, medieval too, right yep. off the bat. And you have way more flute and uh it's very like sparse and light there's one voice and electric guitar and and then at about two minutes it just becomes a 10 minute just jam like free jazz like improv can you parts of it it's like is it a jam <laughs> i don't know i mean they're literally just making know. sounds it's well, just sounds yeah. it sounds like free jazz to me which would have been you know roughly about the same time that a lot of the free jazz was coming out where it's just you literally are just there's no plan you just improvise it's a jazz odyssey if you've ever seen spinal tap no <laughs> like time for jazz odyssey right that's hilarious like, yeah we, we just need to fill time and i don't know if, if they decided like i don't know i'm, I'm not sure what the th- thought process was behind this because this isn't the sort of thing that you hear on even other prog albums that much they're just like we're just gonna do whatever for 10 minutes and you can yeah, clearly I, tell that the musicians are playing off each other like there's certain parts where they're like syncing up or they're doing things that are like listening to the other person it's very clear they're all playing in the same room, kind of working off each other. Right, and and that's the thing with this band. This is a good example of when you need to watch them live. Because yeah, because yeah. I think I think if you were on LSD and watching this live, <laughs> you might be impressed. But like for the lay person just listening, you're like, what is what is happening? This is the you kind of stuff I mean? that doesn't translate over on an album well. Like yeah, the middle I, section of Schizoid Man translates fine because it's like there's the parts that come back and there's some free. Oh, yeah, there's some it's loose, awesome. There's some looseness to it, but yeah. It's not like this where it just feels like, uh, what's going on? But this kind of stuff can be cool live because I've watched a lot of jazz live, and that's why I don't like to listen to jazz. On... <laughs> I, I just I just see like a hippie den in 1969, yeah, yeah. and that this album comes on, and they're like in the middle of their trip, you know, and they're like, oh my god, like they get all paranoid. Yeah, it's like you've got to listen to Dark Side of the Moon while you're stoned. Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, this, I mean, this is just weird. Like they'd be walking around their living room, and it's playing all this weird percussive yeah. stuff, and and uh, what I don't, what is it, a vibraphone's in it, just playing random yeah. notes. Yeah. You know, it's super weird. Super As I'm weird. listening to it, like I was listening to the album last night because I wanted to get just keep be refreshed on it. And like yeah. you got to this part of Moonchild, I was like, I think I'm just going to skip it. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like I understand what it is and I understand yeah. that it's, it would work well in a live situation, but it just doesn't translate very well overall. So I think for all those reasons, this is kind of my least favorite song on the album. But yeah, I, I, I would like, I didn't watch a live recording of Moonchild, but I do know that they do really impressive stuff uh, percussively, especially when they get to um, 1973. I, um, shoot, what's the album? The one uh, LARPs, Larks of- in Aspeak. Aspic. Yeah, which is another one of their big albums. But- and so I had never listened to that album until we decided to yeah. do this podcast. And that was my personal favorite album. That's a great album. But yeah. the, reason, the reason I bring that up is because the percussionist is all over the place. He has a, a whistle in his mouth. <laughs> He's hitting just pieces of metal to make sounds. He has like a thing he twists that makes a weird sound. And he makes sure that it perfectly syncs up with the instruments in a weird way. And when yeah. you watch it live, you're like, that's super cool. When you hear it on this album, you're like, this I, is I, random noises. I, I do think <laughs> that... I, that was a conscious choice though because Robert Fripp talks about how he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be like traditional in any way essentially like yeah. to do things that are predictable and part of that that aesthetic could be like 
okay, we're just going to jam for 10 minutes because screw it. Like we can do whatever we want, you know, sort of a thing. Yeah. There's a quote from, uh, uh, Sinfield and he says, if it sounded at all popular, it was out. So yeah, it had exactly. to be complicated. It, it had to be more expansive chords. It had to have strange influences. If it sounded too simple, we'd make it more complicated. Like we played in seven, eight, five, eight, yeah. or just show off. Well, that's interesting. He says seven, eight, five, eight, cause there really no, are no odd time signatures in this album. Mm. like distur- discernibly odd time signatures. Now there's some different feels like you go from a triplet feel to, but there aren't any like extended periods sections that are like, this is in seven, eight or this is in five, you know, that kind of a thing, which is interesting. Right. Uh, the time signature stuff, I think becomes more and more of a thing as prog goes along to at the point now where it's like, you almost have to write in on time signatures, but that wasn't always the case with the early prog. Right. Um, yeah, but there's, I mean, there's, there's really, uh, experimental like guitar sounds and stuff And this. Robert Fripp's really known for his like u- unique sounds and interesting kind of textures and stuff. So a lot of that's happening in Moonchild too, but, um, it's very much a kind of thing where I think they're just like, ah, screw you guys. We're going <laughs> to jam for 10 minutes or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. I, um, I was, gosh, I was going to say something about that improvisational aspect. Uh, but I totally forgot. That's cool. Let's move on to um, Crimson. Yeah, King. there's not much. I was going to just say on the lyrics, really. I mean, they're just very romantic lyrics of this moon child, but yeah. there's not really much to say. Um, it's very much a, a emotional, more than cerebral, yeah. I would say, uh, compared to the other songs. Um, but that that's about it. So Yeah, so Core of the Crimson King, which is, I guess we decided their second most popular song. This, yes. for me, is my favorite song on the album. Um, yep. It's much it's heavier and darker, and it really has a really epic quality to it. I just love the way it builds to that chorus every time. Like, there's just something about that melody and the way that it, it kind of comes out is, is really kind of it's epic, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of takes the epitaph orchestral aspects, but then also it has kind of a heaviness, like 21st century. Yeah, like band. there's a faster section in the middle that feels more like kind of that uh, proggy instrumental kind of thing that you would hear in newer yep. prog. So it's got more energy than epitaph for sure. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. It's also interesting, this chorus, I charted it because I was curious. I was like, oh, this happens so many times. It happens five times. The God of the oh Crimson gosh. King. You know, and in a <laughs> pop song, you have three choruses usually as your top. Yeah. So that's very interesting. The structure of this is like, it's because this is 10 minutes long. It just kind of goes, you know, they're just like, whatever, we're going to do whatever we want pretty much. Uh, yeah. And then they have that fake out at the end and then it comes back in for like two minutes of more instrumental stuff. Right. Um, this is another example I, of, of only having a verse and a chorus though for the lyrics. Like there's only those two sections for the, yeah, for the vocals. Yeah, that's weird. It would, uh, you know, I didn't even think about that. But um, it happens so many this, times. So you're like. <laughs> yeah. This song that I actually got to watch live, um, it was done by Sean Lennon and Les Claypool. Um but I, that was kind of, so this was, let's see, this was two or three years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of my first exposure. I was like, oh, this is a King Crimson song. And I knew that. Yeah. But then seeing it live, I'm like, and, and, and making that connection to a band that I really liked. This was sort of my way of getting into King Crimson was through this song. So, yeah. And this was probably the first King Crimson song I heard, if I think about it. I was probably, back in the day, I was searching on LimeWire or something, you know, like... <laughs> trying yeah. to find, wow. find a king crimson or something song that's how, da- so how did you me. hear about king crimson exactly i mean okay so i got into prog through dream theater that was like my gateway into prog right um and then from there i wanted to go back and discover all the bands that influenced them right 
so I discovered Rush and Genesis and Yes and all that. And King Crimson was one of those, you know. And so I listened to like the big songs from King Crimson early on, like probably when I was 18 or whatever. But at that time in my life, that didn't appeal to me as much. Just yeah. based on where I was as a person and what kind of music I liked and how I wanted to play, you know, I just wanted to shred or whatever, you know. Um, but as I come back to this as older, like I get so much more out of oh, all this yeah. old prog in general, but especially the King Crimson um I, I definitely have a much greater appreciation for it. And this song, like I listened to it and I was literally just like humming the chorus from this all last night because it is funny. pretty, you know, I mean, it has kind of a, a catchy quality to it, even though it's not like a pop song, you know? Oh, it totally does. And and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I remember I listened to Rush when I was like a sophomore in high school. I remember the only thing I could think about was how terrible his voice was <laughs> and now, when I listen to Rush, I don't even think about that at all. In fact, I I find his voice endearing. Like, I yeah. appreciate it. And I had a similar thing with Crimson, uh, with uh, King Crimson, is that I just I just didn't get it, you know? Yeah. And sometimes it just takes some maturity and, well, I mean, and some these... open-mindedness, yeah. too, to what they're putting out there. Yeah, you got to keep an open mind for any of the stuff. Um, there's probably yeah. some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier with production and things like that, too, is, like, if you're not conscious of that like you can just be turned off by how the fact that this is album is 52 years old or whatever um but yeah and the the content and lyrical content of it too like this is dark stuff and it's serious like and as i get older like i really appreciate that more now than i would have as an 18 year old like i just wanted to hear riffs when i was 18 or whatever yeah that's yeah i still do get a hankering for some oh yeah and you gotta have riffs obviously (laughs) but i I think this kind of stuff this kind of music is it's easier to appreciate as you mature yeah. a little bit. I, I really found, I mean, this was like a crash course for me. So I listened to this and then I listened to discipline and that's the one with Tony Levin. Yeah. So that's one of their, their three albums from the late seventies, early eighties. And then I listened to um, construction of light and then, and then I listened to their mid seventies. So like red and um, the, the, the Lark's, Aspeak, gosh, why yeah. am I keep forgetting that? But anyway, those that mid seventies, I really appreciated. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I I couldn't believe that I missed out on yeah. it, uh, and especially watching it live and, and listening to the album, um, I really felt like that was the best King okay. Crimson for me. Yeah. This album is not necessarily the best. Uh, it doesn't hit me at a visceral level, yeah. but I can appreciate it at a, I guess, like an intellectual level and also understand its, yeah. its impact it's and important. its influence it had later. Yeah, I, I agree too. I think this this probably isn't my favorite King Crimson album, but I like it a lot and I think it's really good. And it will be interesting to talk about, uh, especially like Yes and Genesis, and because their big albums were like their third or fourth album where they kind of figured out their sound. And so those to me are like some of my favorite of their albums. So, and it's interesting that the first King Crimson album is their like biggest, most influential one. Like they didn't even get a chance to like figure out their sound. They're like, here, you guys are like popular. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. And their first track is their most popular song. That you know, is really weird. The first track they ever made. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, know. There's the very what other f- bands are there like that, especially a band's been around for fifty years. Their most popular track. I, tracks I can't the think of any. I mean, ago. if if anyone in the comments wants to put something down, they think the band's first song is their most popular. Like, I can't think I, of any. Typically, it takes a couple albums, you know, and then a band gets huge or whatever. I mean, there's obviously one hit wonders, but that's different. I, I, I'm I'm talking about a band that's been around for a long time and still their first track ever is their most popular track it is interesting it just it i guess it hit at the right time and 
it was the right song for them at the right time so yeah interesting so, so what, what are your thoughts overall on the album i mean we talked well, maybe a little bit about about that but yeah well i was just gonna i was gonna say really quick as far as the conclusion of this album oh, yeah. what's weird is then after this album the group effectively breaks up yeah uh, a good chunk of them leave i mean who lake leaves right yep um does giles stays doesn't he now I, now i'm actually forgetting i can't remember well this is a pretty common thread we'll see across uh, i think all of the the big early prog bands is like they have so many lineup changes yeah like, but, but in this case the only one is frip you know so there's, yeah so there's a lot so of lake leaves lake leaves he goes to uh emerson lake and palmer and then mcdonald and giles also leave so the only one that stays is sinfield and he will ultimately leave as well i mean it, um so they're broken up yeah. by the last show they play is december 16th 1969 so this this specific group didn't even last a year yeah it was and, less than a year from the time of like inception they're beginning they, from when they met yeah from when they first that's met. crazy and they <laughs> yeah. they, they play for the rolling stones and release this like seminal album within a year <laughs> i know that's crazy that is so crazy yeah and that that's the case for a lot of uh prog bands is like a lot of times there'll only be one or two members that kind of are last the whole time and they become i guess kind of the the owners of of the band in some ways yeah that's a good way of putting um, it yeah of the the and the property like, rights yeah like yeah. Fripp owns like the property rights to this and stuff i'm pretty sure so yeah. um so as far what did you ask uh my, uh, just my like impressions thoughts. Or? well yeah because for people watching we want to or listening we want to give our like uh, unfiltered opinions of stuff and 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 a, a few times we've said throughout like we didn't like certain things and all that but um yeah. you know we're not just gonna be like hey this album's awesome because it was the first prog album or whatever uh, yeah well like i said like uh i think a good question is well why is this prog and and it's prog for the reasons that i like it like you said it's high and low yeah, it meshes those cultures. I I like the improvisational aspects that they bring to prog rock, and yep. I actually think it'd be cool if you would have maybe even more modern prog bands sort of reintegrate that. Yeah, unless unless they're doing it like I I imagine Transatlantic probably does stuff like that, right? Would they have improvisational? Yeah, yeah, bits? a little bit more maybe. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but is so as far as that, I mean, you can't deny the impact that this album had. Uh, you can as you listen to it, you it's like uh. It's almost like listening to the the future uh, yeah, somewhat. Oh yeah. I mean, you'll hear a riff and you're like, oh, that's like sounds like War Pigs, uh, or you'll you know even farther on, you're like, oh, that sounds like you know Radiohead. And so the impact is so impressive. But with that said, it, it's hard because of the context of this album. It's really hard for me to viscerally enjoy the yeah. album at a level I do other albums. But but if anything, that's probably a fault of me or <laughs> it's just because I wasn't in the, the right mindset or the, the right yeah. um, time period to really appreciate it in, in all of its glory. And I do wish that I could have watched them live or even, I guess they still play live. I would love to watch them live because I think I would develop an incredible appreciation for their music. Yeah, watching a band live does make a big difference, but you'll never be able to watch like this lineup of a band live so you know there is time yeah. period stuff involved too i mean this these people aren't you know this album came out 20 years before i was born so yeah am, am i ever going to be able to appreciate it as much as someone who 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 listened to it when it first came out you know i don't know um yeah. i don't think yeah i think you're right this doesn't hit me and it, there's nostalgia involved with things hitting you at a visceral level especially as you get older um 
because things hardly anything hits me the way that like some of those bands I loved when I was 20 years old do. Um, there are parts of this album though that do hit me on a visceral level. I think specifically Core of the Crimson King. Like I actually have, I feel like I have some sort of emotional reaction to that song in parts. So, um, which isn't really the case I think on any of the rest of these songs. Um, but that doesn't mean I obviously don't understand and appreciate what's going on. You know, you got yeah. the long songs, you got the weird arrangements, virtuosity, cool chord progressions. Uh, you know, it, it's got, it's got all the kind of prog staple ideas in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Anthony Fantano, I think that's his name. He does yeah, uh, the music album, the, bi- the, the, NES, the NES biggest music nerd. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, he he. I watched his review on okay. this album, and and what he said, he said, uh, uh, while prog rock gets the technicality correct, they miss out on the emotional components, and King Crimson does both. And I thought that was a really good assessment. I do feel like this album is hitting the high culture and the low culture really well, and so I, I do think that's something that modern prog bands could learn. Oh yeah, for sure. From this album, still, I think it would uh, be interesting yeah. to as we listen through some newer albums, like especially when you get to the more technical music, like to see which bands we think still bring some sort of emotional element to it, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause I think that's right. You know, this album does feel like meaningful in some way and like deep. Um, whereas I don't know that that's always the case with newer bands. Yeah. And, and, and it's not as, it's not as, you know, we already said this, but not as mechanical or robotic, oh, yeah, you know, sure. when, when you say prog rock uh, now, you think of something that's technically and mechanically crafted. You don't think of improvisation. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's very clear. I mean, obviously if anyone's, I'm assuming you're following what I'm doing on my own too. It's very much like, I'm very much in the, like everything's crafted and kind of thought out. Um, I try to do some improvisational videos every once in a while too, but um, that is kind of the nature of modern progressive music. And it'll be interesting to see as we go through stuff, how it slowly transformed into that, you know? Mm-hmm. So All I don't right. really have too think, much else uh, on this, but yeah, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, I think that was a good first episode. Um, like I said, you can find our uh, playlist on Spotify. We'll leave uh, that in the comments. I've included some the the album, so you can listen to that, mm-hmm. obviously, but also some of the uh, the bands and songs that influenced King Crimson, and also some of the stuff that came afterwards. Yeah um make sure you like subscribe or leave us a review that really helps us out you can also find morgan's videos on youtube under the prog school where he breaks down classic prog tracks and also provides instruction on how to shred (laughs) no my my (laughs) no the prog school is designed to help people learn how to understand and write progressive music that's the idea anyway so i do break down songs from famous bands but more of a component of it is i'm writing my own music that i'm also kind of uh exploring how i'm creating the music that i'm writing to so the idea is i want to give people tools that they can use to make their own music um and it's not just prog i think the stuff i'm doing could is useful for any musician um so yeah you can find that at the prog school i'm also on facebook as the prog school and then on instagram i'm still under as morgan wick music right now Um, but youtube's the main place where i'm dropping all the content um so i think uh if you enjoyed what we're doing here yeah like comment subscribe all that stuff um if you have suggestions for some things that would be cool for us to cover like Mm -hmm. album songs or even just other segments that you'd like to see like just particular things you might want to hear us talk about um just let us know and 
we can try to see if we can implement some of those. Um, I'm not sure what album we're talking about next. We got to figure that out, but uh, it'll be a classic one for sure. Yeah. Um, we're going to have some guests on too. So if you guys know, um, if, you, if anyone has context to some guests that you'd like to have on or think that we should have on, just let us know. Um, we have some people we have in mind uh, right off the bat, but we'd love to have some some cool guests on here as well. So. All right. Um, that's it for me. us. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on episode two of the Prague School Podcast. Yep. And as always, stay proggy. Stay proggy.